it came out like Valentine's Day. What? You're telling me people went on Valentine's Day to yeah. see Sonic? Yeah, February 14th, 2020. Why the fuck <laughs> did that happen? <laughs> They're trying to get people who are sexually attracted to Jim Carrey to go. I don't fucking know. to film kids giant squids and other things that think they're deep i'm Lindsay and i'm brooke and this week we're talking about scott pilgrim versus the world and jumanji welcome to the jungle <laughs> i forgot about the welcome to the jungle they're both such long titles that you never say the full thing like everyone just calls it scott pilgrim everyone just calls it jumanji it's also really annoying that jumanji 2 isn't jumanji 2 it's just jumanji the next level I wonder what Jumanji 3 is going to be called. The final boss? Like, what? I hope it's the lighthouse one that I'm not going to edit out. (laughs) I mean, have you seen the sequel to Jumanji? Probably not. No, I haven't. Spoiler alert. The end of it is that Jumanji has broken out of the video game and is now in the real world. (gasps) Which is, like, conceptually, I, I, I vibe. Like, that's the kind of chaos I would like to see in the world. (laughs) Please don't leave me saying in I vibe. (laughs) <laughs> that's gonna be the intro <laughs> know who else likes scott pilgrim obviously film kids what and mom jeans <laughs> oh, i was like that's the whole premise of this podcast Lindsay. <laughs> i bet mom jeans are film kids they have a film kid vibe but so does yeah. a lot of emo i feel like the venn diagram of like emo kid circle. film kid yeah it's kind of it's probably like a small sliver on either side for like the weird, like, French New Wave kids. <laughs> Are you fine with the transition that you had? No. All right. You want to know who likes mom jeans? Film, Film kids. <laughs> Except, unlike mom jeans, and we, we. want to <laughs> avoid them. Unlike mom yes. jeans, I cannot listen to Film Kids straight for six hours. 127 hours with an Ilm kid. First up, remember when I talked about Tom Cruise going to space? Yeah, that was... That was our first episode. It was our first episode. I have the world's smallest update. (laughs) So many articles were like, update about Tom Cruise going to space. And I was like, no way. Is there like a date? Is there like someone else attached? Like, what's the update? Do you know what the update is? Doug Lamont, who is the filmmaker working with Cruise on this, just was like, yeah, it's still going to happen. We're having conversations about it. Uh... That's the update. (laughs) Update still happening. The full quote is just being like, the whole thing we've been trying to deal with is how how you insure the film. Like, you have to insure a film and, like, it's a weird thing to insure. So, like, we're not really sure how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. I, like, heard E-N-S-U-R-E. And I'm like, yeah, he's ensuring that it's going to happen. He's ensuring that it will be insured so that it can happen. (laughs) When something important happens in the news and then it's like, breaking news, there's no updates yet. And I'm like, that's not breaking! (laughs) Like, to be fair, it was part of, of course, he has a pandemic film coming out called Locked Down that's starring Anne Hathaway, who decide to rob Herod in the middle of a pandemic. That's fun. Is it? Do I we guess. need a pandemic film? Do we? No, I don't care. And it also shot in London during the pandemic. You know how I was like vaguely quoting him about being like, I just found the real quote, but the quote that this article decided to pull was just quote, oh yeah, it's not just some abstract idea. It's a movie. End quote. <laughs> Thanks. It is a movie. Good to know. It is a movie. <laughs> News update. It is a movie. And 27 hours. <laughs> <laughs> 
speaking of Movies? COVID filmmaking, <laughs> another pandemic movie Boo. is coming out. Boo. It's called Why? Safer at Home. Mom Jeans would never do this. <laughs> it was a pandemic thriller directed by Will Wernick. I feel like Safer at Home is the name of like 27 PSAs. It was the name of the LA lockdown. Okay, that's <laughs> that's why it's in my mind. Yeah, Safer at Home is set in 2022 when the coronavirus pandemic has created mass chaos in Los Angeles and turned the city into a police state. To escape the grim That's reality, <laughs> a group of friends get together for an online party, a night of music, drinking, games, and drugs. After they collectively take a hit of what they think is Molly, things go terribly wrong. Boo. The article is that it found a distributor, so it will be coming out eventually. It's just Boo. hasn't been named yet of when, but it will be coming out because everyone needs more COVID-related content. If you're working on COVID content right now, just stop. Do anything else. Pick a single other idea. Make it about climate change. Make it about all the other pandemics that we're going to have. Just do something else. I was going to give an update on our on our boy. Our boy. David Lynch. In case you were curious, he still does his daily number draws and daily weather reports. Let's find out what today's number is. Also, he's added to his outfit. He now wears this really stylish hat and sunglasses. Well, sunglasses were there because the future is so bright. But he added a hat and I don't know what the reasoning for the hat is. Now our future is too bright. It needs to be extra shaded. Today's number was a four. I don't know if I had a four day. So this is day 162 of him picking numbers. According to our good buddy, Seth MT, who pulls the stats every day, this guy really dedicates a lot. Not only does he write out the sequence of all 162 numbers, he adds them up. He gives the average. He also does a weird, like, digit sum for today's date where he, like, he adds up, like, today's January 24th. So he adds a 2, a 4, a 0, a 1, a 2, a 0, a 2, a 1. I don't know why, but he does. Is he looking for if you add up, like, a bunch of numbers that, like, occur naturally, you're more likely to get a 1 or a 2? Is that, like, what he's trying to do? I forget what this is called. No idea what he's trying to do there. He also calculates the frequencies of all the numbers. The most picked is... Eight. It has been picked 26 times. The least picked is two. It has picked only nine times. Wow. He also calculates the days since a number was last picked. Like, it's been 17 days since one was last picked. Two does seem like kind of a haunted number, so, like, probably for the best, it's not picked that often. He also calculates, like, the top five longest time spent unpicked. The longest a number went unpicked was 64 days. Three was unpicked from days 25 to 88. Generally, if you're into weird stats about numbers, look up Seth MT. He really, he finds his place on David Lynch number picking. He he does the good work of following David Lynch. He doesn't comment on his weather reports, which that is really weird to me because David Lynch, he posts two videos a day and this guy comments on just one video every day. Does he watch the weather reports? Does he even care? Is he like, no, all I care about is the numbers. Like these comments are really wholesome. Like this person's talking about how he's got dad's trusty thermos full of black coffee. I just like, if you ever feel 
Like, you can't depend on anything. Just know you can depend on David Lynch giving you what number it is today and what the weather is. I feel like he's doing, like, a daily tarot reading, but, like, only with nine numbers. And there's well, no, no there's ten, because there's a zero. <laughs> like, the weather reports feel like... Like Night Vale? Yeah, like an art project where, like, the number things just feel like him having fun and also if you like scroll (laughs) through his like feed it's really weird because it's like his number picking is always a black screen with today's number is and then his weather report he literally looks exactly the same and i feel like if you string all these thumbnails together you can possibly read his lips like i feel like that's gonna happen (laughs) and it's very uncanny this is gonna be how he introduces his next project this is his next project what are you talking about the last time he did a what is david working on today was in november he's working on the weather he makes the weather that tracks Anyway, that's what film kids are talking about this week. For the next, you're talking to a film kid. Ask them why are they putting out the energy into the world that we need COVID-19 films. Because if there wasn't an audience for it, they wouldn't get made. We're blaming film kids for this now? I'm blaming the world, but I feel like film kids will get my message out. Scott Pilgrim versus the world. So my shitty tweet summary is... A quote-unquote nice guy is shocked when he turns out to not be all that nice. Mine is, a dude single-handedly destroys any hope for the success of his band by fighting every person who possibly made eye contact with his girlfriend in the past 15 years. Mainly because I'm not considering anyone that she only dated for one single week in high school to be boyfriend level enough to be on a list. Not to defend Scott, but he didn't put them on the list. No, Gideon put them on the list. Yeah, Gideon is actually the true enemy of this movie. And also Scott, together. (laughs) Scott's the enemy. (laughs) Scott's the enemy, but Gideon is somehow But Gideon wanted to destroy Scott, so who's really the enemy? Both. Because Gideon wanted to control (laughs) Ramona, so like, fuck that. That's fair. Gideon is who Scott will be in ten years, I feel like. Gideon was really nega-Scott. Or was Scott Nega Gideon? Ooh. It also sounds like, I forget her name. Whoever the woman was, it equally sounds like Ramona just like made out with her once. I don't even know how she ended up on the list, especially because Ramona was confused that she was on the list. Yes. But she put her on the list. Like when immediately after, when she hands over the list, she's like, oh yeah, Roxy's on here. Like she also knew that she had seven evil exes. So like clearly she knew. Unless there's just an ex that didn't show up. Imagine that. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, she only dated Scott for three weeks. A lot of these people were, like, possibly week-long relationships in high school. Which I don't even think I'd remember that enough to accidentally tell my overbearing boyfriend of the time for him to have enough information to track them down and get their contact info. So, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. It was directed by Edgar Wright, written by Michael Bacall with Edgar Wright. It's based on the Scott Pilgrim graphic novel series by Brian Lee O'Malley, and was released in 2010 in the United States. One, I think Edgar Wright is one of my favorite directors because he's so funny to me. Like, as a human, he's funny. I don't know if you've seen it, but it is one of my favorite interview clips. But the interview with Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah, where, like, the interviewer is just like, hey, Jonah Hill, what's it like to be fat and funny? Wouldn't it suck if you weren't fat? Like, you wouldn't be anybody. And then also, at the same time, it's just like, so, like, this is, like, it. Like, your career is over now, right? Have you not seen this? No. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
So the interviewer is Edgar Wright. Judd Apatow asked him to do this and specifically wanted him to do it with someone else from the movie. I can't remember who. And he was just like, no, man, I really can't act. Me doing it with Jonah Hill and Michael Sarah was as best as it's gonna get. And I'm already, I'm just, I can't do that again. I can't do it. Okay, because for a second I thought that, like, he was just interviewing them for fun and this actually happened. And I was like, why are you showing this to me? <laughs> no. But a couple weeks ago, someone, like, tweeted at him about it. And he was just like, honestly, it's weirdly a proud moment in my career that people still think this is real. <laughs> <laughs> someone was like, wait, did you know about Scott Pilgrim when you did this interview? And he was like, I mean, yeah, we were already in talks. So that really just sealed the deal. It was just him going with this bit. And I was like, imagine that's how you get a job. <laughs> just going with a bit. So O'Malley, the guy who wrote the graphic novel series, initially didn't like the idea of a film adaptation. His publisher sold the rights before the first book was even published, if not, like, right when it was getting published. Oh, wow. According to O'Malley, he expected the studio to fully just turn it into an action comedy with just some actor that he didn't like and said he didn't even care because, quote, I was a starving artist and I was like, please give me some money. Oh. And that's relatable. <laughs> So Universal contacted Edgar Wright to direct the movie. Edgar Wright was given a pre-release copy of the first graphic novel during the press tour for Shaun of the Dead and absolutely loved it and loved the world and was very interested in adapting it. And then in 2005, Bacall was brought on to co-write the screenplay. In the original ending, which was written before the final book was written, Scott gets back together with Knives. And then the final book was released after filming had wrapped and test audiences were more divided and didn't really like this ending and so a new ending was filmed to match the books and Edgar Wright called Ellen Wong who plays Knives and was just like kind of like really apprehensive thinking she would hate that like she essentially <laughs> she didn't really get written out of the ending but she got a huge emotion and instead Ellen said that she loved the new ending more. Was Knives also only like 17 in the books as well? Yeah. How old was Ellen Wong? is the real question. According to Wikipedia, she's either 35 or 36. Oh, like her birthday is just unknown? Because she's just 1984 slash 1985. And then Ellen <laughs> Wong, parentheses, born 1984 or 1985. Huh, she has a black belt in Taekwondo, which helped her land the role of Knives Cho. It opens with that Universal logo pixelated thing, which Edgar and his brother Oscar worked together on and what is in the movie was initially just their rough draft but they had to have something in place for when they showed it to test audiences and test audiences like love that and they're just like cool then we're Aww. done the rough draft is as good as it gets like we don't need to work on it anymore i feel that so we open in toronto where scott a 22 year old man is dating a high schooler and there's also like it's addressed but, like, never really addressed. Like, his sister, who's 18, and Aubrey Plaza are like, gross, you're a fucking creep. And everyone else is like, mm, kind of weird, but, like, good for you. Kim says that she wants to punch his life in its face, so. So he tells... The other members of his band, the Sex Bombs, that he's dating this high schooler. Like, I think one of them starts giving him shit and he says, I'm not playing your little games, kids. Like, sir, you are dating a high schooler. Don't refer to your friends who were six months a year younger than you as kids. Knives shows up and before she is let in, Scott tells her to promise to be good, which just like adds a whole other layer to the creepy factor. The most unrealistic part of this movie is the band doesn't suck. Ayo. 
<laughs> but also, the actors, they all actually had to learn their instruments, except for Michael Sarah, who already knew how to play bass, and therefore had to dumb it down so that he wasn't just showing up everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, that fact alone makes me laugh a lot. <laughs> I knew that only because there's a band called Michael Sarah Palin, and I was, like, talking about them with someone, and I kept saying it, and they're like, yeah, Michael Sarah. And I'm like, no, like, Michael Sarah Palin. It's named after Michael Sarah, but also Sarah Palin. And they're like, no, Michael Sarah does music. And I'm like, no, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> I will say the soundtrack of this movie, A+. When this movie came out, I had the soundtrack downloaded on my iPod. And it was very nostalgic to hear these songs again. I would also definitely see all of these bands. I feel like particularly Crash and the Boys, just because I love... And the Boys? Was it not Crash and the Boys? I won't, no, I thought you were say I. you just like And the Boys, because I just like And the Boys titles. Broken social <laughs> scene. Sorry. It was bugging me what the real name of Crash and the Boys was. Oh, they're a real band? Yeah, they're all, they're all, all oh, of the bands cool. in, besides like the twins, are real bands played by like the real musicians. Clash of the Demon Head is based on Metric. She's stepping in for Metric's front woman. Also, like in my mind, the twins are 100 Gex, but like I know that they weren't a band. That's yet. also getting cut. 100 Gex are popular! <laughs> To who? Sex Bomb is based on Beck, who did write all the oh. original songs for them. Oh my god, I didn't know that. The guy who plays Stills, he re-recorded the vocals to be his own. Scott wears a Plum Tree shirt in it, and then also Plum Tree there's has a song called Scott Pilgrim, which originally inspired Brian Lee O'Malley to name the character Scott Pilgrim after that song. So it's kind of like full circle. Mm. Knives and Scott play DDR at the arcade. Dance fighting, some would call it. I make that joke. <laughs> yeah, it's dance fighting. So they fake play DDR, and Scott tells Knives about his anecdote of Pac-Man slash Puckman, which ugh, wasn't interesting the first time movie, and we had to hear it twice. Thank you for that. <laughs> he then shows Knives his lair, and then turns around to his childhood home, which that's how you really know that he's... A gross dude is he's 10 feet away from his childhood bedroom at all times. He also won't let her into the apartment because, quote, no girls allowed. And, like, if someone said that to me, there was the, am I the asshole? No, it was the R, like, relationships post of someone that was dating someone for three years and then found out that he had a nest, aka, like, no bed. He just right. slept in a pile of clothes on the ground. And, like, if anyone refuses to show me their apartment... I am assuming that they have a nest. <laughs> I wouldn't go straight to nest. I would be like, cool, you have chopped up limbs. Maybe that's the nest. The nest could the be nest any, it doesn't limbs, have to be closed. Right. It can be anything. Yeah, okay, that's fair. <laughs> but like if someone literally takes me to yeah, their apartment I just, like, and why would like, you, like, oh, not for you though. <laughs> like why would you be like, let's go see my place. Oh cool, here's the door. Now bye. Like I'd be like, what? <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Scott then has a dream where Ramona roller skates by in the desert. He then sees her in the library when he's there with knives. And then becomes real obsessed with Ramona almost immediately. He goes to the party and finds Ramona there. He tells Ramona his Pac-Man, Puck-Man story somehow even worse than before. And somehow she, like, allows him to continue speaking to her. Like, if someone came over and said that to me, I'd be well, like- he says, <laughs> I'll leave you alone forever now. And she says, thanks. 
And then he proceeds to immediately stalk her for the rest of the party. He gets home and goes to order an Amazon package because Ramona will then deliver it. Because there's exactly one Amazon delivery roller skater in Toronto. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's actually only one Amazon roller skater delivery person because everyone else has to have a truck. He specifies in his delivery notes via rollerblade only. How does she get away with that? Some people order things that are bigger than an envelope. He then sees an email from Matthew Patel and deletes it because it's boring. Fun fact, Brian Lee O'Malley, he kind of got the idea, like, two things happened. One, he kind of was like, what if you spend 800 hours playing, like, a Street Fighter game and then had to fight someone in real life? Like, would you be able to, like, what if you got those powers? And then simultaneously, when he was dating his not-yet wife, he found out that she had three exes all named Matthew and was like, what if there's... And came up with this idea of this League of Matthews, and that's where the League of Exes came from. And Matthew Patel is the only Matthew that made it. Oh my god, that's the extreme version of everyone with the same name needs to fight each other. But like, no one has fought before Scott because Gideon was the last ex and he just created the league. So no one else has fought before. Scott hangs out with Knives, continues to be a huge dick, and even though he's no longer interested in her, does not break up with her. Stills tells Knives about the show at the Battle of the Bands where it's revealed they're battling Crash and the Boys and I don't I didn't write down who said it but I think it's young Neil says you mean that one band with Crash and those boys (laughs) (laughs) which like that just like their uh. alternative name (laughs) Scott leaves his bathroom and is suddenly in a school hallway with Ramona roller skating by with his package he wakes up to her delivering it and learns of the hyperspace subspace in his head which sure fine whatever I remember that being weird in the graphic novels I feel like it's even weirder in the movie because so much of this movie is just like so fast so he asks Ramona out despite being like I love you stupid but you want to go out she can't leave until he signs for the package and he won't sign until she agrees so basically he holds her hostage until she agrees (laughs) one don't do this in general don't ask people out at work (laughs) <laughs> Not don't ask anyone out at work ever. It's such a bad move. Like in a customer Especially service, in work situations where they cannot leave. Or like where their job depends on making people happy. If she was in a job where like the customer couldn't affect her, like she could just say fuck off and leave, fine. Go for it, I guess. I mean don't, but like Don't go for it, but on the level of shitty, you're less shitty than the person that's doing it to the person that has to please the customer. But also, he's still dating a 17-year-old, so especially don't do this, Scott. Like, stop being like a <laughs> quadruple, a cocky cock, one might say. Also, fun fact, the reason why they had to implement the like bleeping function is because of the line cocky cock. If they had that plus like one F-bomb, it would have been an R-rated and the studio wanted it to be PG-13. So then they like implemented (laughs) the joke of the bleeping function. Ramona and Scott hang out in the cold and then he goes back to her apartment and has tea or rather he doesn't have tea. One of the teas in the list was liver disaster tea and I didn't know if it existed, but I wanted it to which I looked it up and was like, oh my God, it is a real tea. And then I looked into it 
bit further and was like, oh, it's a real tea because someone saw this movie and wanted to make a tea named after it. The tea that was made by Adagio, but it is citrus green tea and apples, which support liver detoxification as well as like pomegranate and raspberries, which have antioxidants. So it's just like tea that's really good for you. I love a good fruity (laughs) And sounds delicious. (laughs) According to IMDb Trivia, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who plays Ramona, production apparently was like, here's the list of teas to just read out, like, just put it on the box and you can just read it. It, it like, won't show that you're reading it. And she was like, no, I will memorize this list. This is mine to memorize. You can't make me read a list. I will memorize it. And she did. <laughs> Which, like, on the one hand, Perhaps. yeah, she's an actress, like, like 50% but she sent of their them jobs. All really fast. <laughs> but also, on the other hand, she didn't have to. And I appreciate going that extra mile. They don't have tea. They start hooking up, but then Ramona changes her mind and says they shouldn't have sex, but then doesn't kick Scott out. He also has his eyes closed, and she, like, I I guess, like, takes off her shirt and then, like, hugging him or something. And he's like, oh, is that you? As if he doesn't know what a body feels like. It's, like, this weird line the movie, like, toes of, like, him being completely unaware of girls, like, never been with a girl, and also this chronic, like, heartbreaker. And, like, I think, I mean, part of it is the movie being like, oh, Scott thinks he's this, like, nerd kid, but he's actually a huge dick. (laughs) The next morning, he invites Ramona to his show. That night, she shows up, and so does Knives. Fun fact, Knives is wearing, like, a custom-made sex bomb shirt, and Ellen Wong made that herself. She made two, and she wore one of them (laughs) in the movie. Another one was, like, a bonus feature thing. Crash and the boys go on stage. They play two songs. The first, entitled, I'm So Sad, I'm So Very, Very Sad. And then the second, dedicated to Wallace, called We Hate You, Please Die. Sex Bomb goes on and then is interrupted by Matthew Patel. He introduces himself as the first evil ex. Right before they go on, Scott sees Knives and Ramona talking and he freaks out. And one of the things that they're talking about is how Knives and Scott met, which was while she was with her mom on the bus, meaning he hit on a 17-year-old girl in front of her mom on the bus. He's the worst. There's no defending dating a 17-year-old when you're 22. Like... We're not defending him. We're just reiterating that he's the worst. (laughs) He's the villain. In Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, the world's supposed to be the winner. So he fights Matthew Patel, and Scott beats him and then picks up the $2.40, which is 35 cents less than what he needs to get a bus, which was the price of a bus fare in Toronto at the time of filming. Oh. Because in the books, obviously the books, when it was released in 2005, like, the price was different. So instead of going with the price of the books, they changed it to what it was at filming. And then it's announced that Sex Bomb won the first round. Despite not playing a full song, but... I also like the unaddressed part of this movie, which is, like, seventh grade Matt, like, having the ability to, like, make fireballs, just, like, as part of his life, unannounced, and it wasn't even one of the named reasons that she dated him. Like, if one of my exes could make fireballs with their hands, that would be the reason. I mean, she dates a lot of really powerful dudes, because what's his name? But they all happened after. No, Todd punched a hole in the moon for her. That's fair and probably not a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, no, It every time you see the moon, a shot of the moon in the movie, there is a hole in it. 
the little critter. <laughs> I didn't notice that. How did he do that with all his vegan powers? He was powerful on his own. He didn't need the vegan powers. Then what was he upset about? He relied on his vegan powers once he got them. He got complacent. He wasn't practicing Todd, his normal powers. he could powers. be so much better. Yeah, he could have been, and then he became a vegan. This is what happens when you become a vegan. You <laughs> stop relying on your true power. Moral of the story, don't be a vegan. Don't date 17-year-olds. Especially don't hit on them in front of their mom on the bus. There's, like, one point where Scott's also like, I can't believe you went out with this guy. I feel like talking about Matt, who, like, wasn't even that bad. He was kind of cool. She was dressed like a pirate. Yeah, that's fun. To which also, like, you are dating a 17-year-old, Scott. You are still dating a 17-year-old. Actively, in this moment. (laughs) He doesn't see how uncool that is, because he thinks it's cool. I'm pretty sure it's a screener, Michael Bacall, but the guy who, like, agrees with Wallace about him being a pirate... A lot of fun cameos. On the bus home, Ramona explains that she has seven evil exes, not ex-boyfriends, exes, and that Scott must defeat them. And he's so fucking dense. Literally so dense. She corrects exes at least ten times. Uh, that's another reason why she knew Roxy should show up. She so knows I don't Roxy know why she was coming. shocked. Yeah. I don't know why she was like, you're here? <laughs> was there another girl that was supposed to show up? But he goes home and Wallace tells him that he has to dump knives. And if he doesn't dump her, he will tell Ramona about knives. Scott goes to a payphone to call her and knives appears. And so they go to the record store and she tells him that she's in love. And Scott says that they should, quote, break up or whatever. Before that, he says, are you even allowed to date outside of your race or whatever? He's the worst. I know he makes such a big deal about her being this Chinese schoolgirl, and I'm like, I don't like this. Don't like Scott. He's the villain. To be fair, he is the villain at the end, and like, he never defeats him. He's like, we're the same. So they know he's the villain. Scott and Rona have their date where Scott freaks out because her hair is blue, and that means she's impulsive, and how dare she change her hair. I know it's for the aesthetic, but how does she change it every week and a half? I don't know. Without it falling out. Because like, it's not just that she's changing it where she can dye on top. Yeah. Like, she has to bleach it to white before doing it. Especially because pink is hard to get out of hair. And you cannot get blue hair unless your hair is completely white because any yellow or other color left in your hair will turn it green. And her blue is very blue. So, like, how the fuck is she doing that? Yeah, you could argue and say that you could go from blue to green without too Easily. much damage. But the pink to blue. Also, I fully had so many Eternal Sunshine and Spotless Mind moments. The order of the hair is the same. The entire hair order and the fact that they're outside of the snow yeah. on a swing set. <laughs> and when they're like, I can't even see you, I was like, yep, this is Eternal Sunshine. So they have their dinner where we get the infamous line, bread makes you fat. He then suggests they go for a walk where they walk onto the set for the Lucas Lee movie. And turns out Lucas is an ex and Scott has to fight him and all of his stunt doubles. Once he defeats the doubles, he then goes to fight the real Lucas where they rip through the New York skyline background, which is just like a little nod to the fact that like 90% of movies filmed that are like supposed to be New York are filmed in Toronto. When Scott's done fighting them, they like die, right? Yeah, that seems to be the understanding. 
because I was gonna say, imagine ruining an entire set just because someone you dated in ninth grade for a week decided to date other people and you made a league of exes with everyone and literally destroyed your entire career for it, except for the fact that you died at the end. But imagine killing someone who's the star of a franchise. Do you know how many angry fans are going to hate Scott now? It's not going to be the League of Evil Exes. It's going to be the League of Lucas Lee fans. Especially because it's Chris Evans. I don't know how he got his voice so deep in this movie. His voice is, like, suspiciously deep. I did really think that, like, the stunt doubles he fights were his stunt doubles in the movie, which is why they don't really look like him. Aww. Scott beats Lucas by convincing him to grind an impossible rail and so he goes too fast and he explodes and then Scott turns around and Ramona is gone. And then Scott receives a call from Envy, his ex, and he tells her about Ramona and then Envy invites him to her show. His extremely generous ex. She gives him VIP tickets to her obviously very popular hometown show and then gets his band an opening gig which will give them tons of publicity which he just sabotages his own band the whole time. I mean, to be fair, she definitely had ulterior motives. But it still would have given them popularity. I mean, they still got popularity, so. They got a record deal. Yeah, and then Gideon dies. (laughs) So their label doesn't exist anymore. I mean, yeah. But, like, would you- you're telling me that Scott should have died so that his former band could have a label and a record deal, even though they didn't really seem to like it? Scott also killed, like, most people at that show. Yeah, he's a murderer, for sure. (laughs) Again, I'm not defending Scott. They're the band where there is a mass murder at their first show where they're assigned band. While walking in the street, Scott is attacked by a girl, and Scott punches her in the boob. And then she tells Scott that she'll be deadly serious next time. And Scott doesn't understand that that's an ex. Like, I don't know who he thinks this person is. He's so dense. Like This is the third person that's attacking you. What the fuck else do you think is happening? And at this point, you know that there are exes who are coming to kill you. And yet... He only still thinks that they're ex-boyfriends. But then what does he think this person is? Nothing. He thinks it's (laughs) just one of the random people that attacks him. He thinks a random ninja is attacking him on the street and it's unrelated to the evil exes. This man is dumb. That's more likely than Ramona being allowed to be by in his mind. Then Sex Bomb opens for the clash with Demon Head. And then in the crowd for Envy's band, Scott realizes that Envy's Todd is also Ramona's Todd. Who would have thought? I mean, to be fair, that I can give him, I wouldn't have thought. (laughs) Like, Ramona isn't from Toronto. She has no business knowing all these people in Toronto. Did these people- did Roxy travel? She's literally the new person. And, like, it's not like they're in school. Like, how do all these townspeople know who she is? Especially just, like, the people that work at the record store. Like, Ramona doesn't seem like someone that would just strike up a random conversation with, like, the people that are working there. Let alone, like, be good friends with all of them. No, for sure not. After the show, they go backstage. Knives tells Envy that she kissed the lips that kissed her, so Envy has Todd punch the highlights out of her. Those probably took a lot of work. Yeah, she did that by herself. First time ever. She didn't fuck it up. 
props. Scott goes to then punch Todd, but learns that Todd has vegan powers, and their fight ensues. They have, like, a physical fight, and they have a base battle, and then Scott is tossed through several walls, and then offers a cup of coffee to Todd, and tricks him into drinking the cup with half and half, and the vegan police show up, taking away Todd's powers. Because it's his third offense. (laughs) His third offense, because there's gelato, and also chicken parm. Which really, wouldn't that be two offenses in one, because it's both chicken... And Parm. And then Scott's, like, final words to him are, You once were a vegan, but now you will be gone. Boo. And I'm sure Scott is so proud of himself. <laughs> and V also says, You killed my boyfriend. And Scott more or less responds with, Well, you make me sad. Which is a fair thing to say back when you murder someone's boyfriend. They go to the after party. Ramona and Scott talk. And Scott asks her if she's ever dated anyone who wasn't a total ass. And she tells him that, so far you're not a total ass. And he responds, but I'm part ass? Yes, Scott. You actively cheated on your underage girlfriend. Among other things. (laughs) Yeah, but just that sentence alone. You're done. (laughs) Roxy, the ninja from earlier, shows up. And Scott finally gets it that she is the fourth evil ex. Which also, my whole thing was, if she knew that she was the fourth ex, why did she try to attack Scott in the alley? Like, did she not know that he hadn't fought Todd yet? Did their order matter? I think it did. It was the order that they dated. I wonder how long she dated the twins for. I want to know background on them. I Uh, feel like we got background on everyone but them. uh, Yeah, it's definitely in the graphic novels. Ramona attempts to fight Roxy and they they battle, but Scott has to be the one to defeat her, not Ramona, which he does by poking the back of Roxy's knee. Ramona gives Scott a list of the rest of her exes and he learns that the Karyanagi twins? The twins are next. And it's revealed that they're going to be fighting them in the next Battle of the Bands round. And they learn it's an amp versus amp off. With very different music. And also just like wouldn't work as a concept. Also a really fun fact that's like such a tiny thing but I love it. Is that the amps when they're playing in that amp versus amp off. Like the Sex Bomb amps. They say like lame brand or worst brand or something. Like the name of the brand. And then when they are at the club at the end... It says, like, sweet brand or best brand. I can't remember exactly what it says, but they changed the name of the brand to be like, oh, we've got this, like, record label money now. And I was like, that's such a good tiny detail. I, like, this is one of those movies that, like, so many things happen in every single moment that, like, I get overwhelmed. Like, them using the, like, Legend of Zelda music. Apparently, that was also good. Edgar Wright, like, specifically wrote Nintendo a letter and was like, please let me use this. I don't understand how they're allowed to be using this, but I'm very happy that they are. He said that he considered the music from the game Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past the nursery rhyme of this generation. So the twins come out on stage and tear the roof off and make dragons appear with their music and then Six Foot Bomb start playing and they make a yeti appear and win the battle. Scott then gets a life and runs after Ramona. He tells her that he's in lesbians with her and Ramona says that they need to break up because of Gideon. Gideon then says that he wants to sign the band, but Scott refuses. Because he hates his band. He doesn't even go to practice. He leaves halfway through. Young Neil replaces Scott and Gideon and Ramona drive off. Scott arrives at the Chaos Theater and tells Ramona he loves her and therefore gets this flaming sword because of it. And he fights 
a horde of Gideon's henchmen, and then when he faces off against Gideon, he immediately gets knocked down. But before he can strike and kill him, Knives comes in with Knives, and she wants to fight yeah. Ramona for stealing Scott. And then Ramona and Knives fight, and Gideon and Scott fight. And then Scott stops Ramona and Knives and tells Knives that he cheated on her with Ramona, but then is like, well, I didn't cheat on you, Ramona, because... I was knives. I cheated on knives with, with you. you. Yeah. That's not rude to you, yeah, even though you, you didn't know. You weren't allowed to be hurt. I mean, he didn't yeah. say that, but he says something very similar. And so then Gideon stabs him through the heart of his Smashing Pumpkins shirt. <laughs> And then he's in the desert dreamscape where Scott and Ramona talk and Ramona reveals that Gideon has a way of getting into her head. Quite literally. If you were going to be on Gideon's side, you can no longer be on Gideon's side because he's literally mind controlling Ramona. But like all the other exes didn't know. They were just like, this dude wants to make a cool club. We're going to join. Yeah, and then I'm they just all saying, die. if you're going to be on Gideon's side in the Scott versus Gideon fight, I have a problem with you. Scott uses his life and then comes back and has to go through the beginning bits again. He arrives at the club and tells... But instead, he murders everyone that's working there. Yeah, instead of just, like, getting through... Like, it didn't hurt him. He knows the passwords. Yeah. It didn't hurt him to use the passwords. Like, he didn't gain a benefit. Like, he gained some money. Like, I'm sure they don't know Gideon. They just work there. Yeah, but yeah, he tells the band is good without him. He tells that Neil that he is just Neil now. And then apologizes to Kim for everything. And apparently that makes Which up isn't for Which is a real it. apology. Like, I would not be happy with that. I'd be like, I need you to tell me what you're sorry for. I'd be like, for what? Because <laughs> there's a lot. Yeah, like, there's a lot. I need you to physically acknowledge what you've done. And then he tells Gideon that he wants to fight Gideon for him and he earns the power of self-respect and then therefore gets a different flaming sword and this one's better. He stops Knives from attacking Ramona and admits that he cheated on them both and then Gideon comes back and fights Scott and Knives steps in and helps. Then Ramona stands up to him and needs Gideon in the balls and Scott manages to kill him and then he has to face off against Nega Scott and then cut to the next scene where Scott and Nega Scott are walking out and just are good buds because they have a lot in common and Ramona walks off saying she needs to go and start over leaving Scott with knives and knives tells Scott to go after her. Scott and Ramona walk off hand in hand and then as we pan up we see the continue question mark which is very much like the ending of Jumanji. Also Gideon was seven billion points which like I know that he was the boss but it's very disproportional calm down. Matt That's was really like, like $2.35. I want to know like, the inflation of all those coins entering the economy. The 7 billion coins. Especially because that doesn't include all the money from all the henchmen. There's more than $7 billion in that room. Yeah, that is Scott Pilgrim versus the world. Jumanji into the welcome to the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> into the welcome to the... <laughs> I don't even know what Into the is getting at. I guess Into the Spider-Verse? I don't even know. Into the Jungle-Verse. <laughs> Jumanji Into the Jungle-Verse. My tweet is, the nerd, the jock, the loner, and the princess somehow beat a video game that has no plot, and somehow that leaves Nick Jonas as Bender. Unsupervised kids in detention almost get themselves killed. A lot of, lot of death in these two <laughs> movies. It's, video games are violent, Lens. Haven't you learned anything? <laughs> 
Apparently not. Someone tell Congress about Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, has there been any copycat killers from Scott Pilgrim? I would love if there was like an, an Evil X League that formed because of Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> I'd love to be in an Evil X League. Yeah, but then... Which arguably, I don't think any of those X's were, were evil. They just get a bad rep. Well, I think you can argue Todd is probably evil. It honestly sounds like a lot of them only became evil after she dumped them because once she dumped them, they couldn't handle it because what guy could handle getting dumped by a manic pixie dream girl? So Jumanji was directed by Jake Castance, who also- So I'm going to reference the other things that they did. They may or may not have had more popular things, but I'm just referencing what I know, which- only includes the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Marvel Cinematic Universe adjacent. That's fair. And some other things. But Jumanji was directed by Jake Kasdan, who also directed episodes of Freaks and Geeks and Undeclared. And it was co-written by Chris McKenna, who also wrote for Community and The Mindy Project, Eric Summers, who also wrote for Community, The Lego Batman Movie, Spider-Man Homecoming, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Spider-Man Far From Home, the other Spider-Man that hasn't come out yet, Scott Rosenberg, who wrote for Venom and was uncredited in the OG Tobey Maguire revisions of the script, and Jeff Pinker, who did the 2018 Venom movie, as well as The Amazing Spider-Man 2. All is to say is all of these people collectively worked on every single (laughs) version of Spider-Man that there could possibly have been, except for Into the Spider-Verse. Edgar Wright also worked on the screenplay for Ant-Man. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that why you like Ant-Man? Ant-Man's really fucking good. I mean, Spider-Man is my favorite superhero, but give me my insect boys! No. Insect adjacent! I didn't like it the first time and I don't <laughs> like it now. This movie received generally positive reviews. It was called a pleasant surprise and was the fifth highest grossing film of 2017, right behind Star Wars The Last Jedi, Beauty and the Beast, The Fast of the Furious. Is that the correct name? No. The Fate of the Furious? Yes. (laughs) The Fast of the Furious. I mean, give them a couple more movies and I'm sure they will. The Furious of the the Furious. Furious or the most at the furious fast. of the fast. Fury at the fast. A panic <laughs> at the disco cover van. This movie is a modern day sequel to the 1995 movie where the board game came alive, yada yada. There was a different non-Zathora one that was being planned in 1999 where I want to see this movie so if someone can still make it, please do. The plot was John Cooper, who was the president of the United States, bought Jumanji from an antique bookstore in Europe and brought it to the White House for his children to play where they get sucked into Jumanji and team up with hybrid animals to get out. Meanwhile, Steve Buscemi, the evil vice president, tries to take this opportunity to rise to power while the oh president my God. is obviously <laughs> missing. Give me that script. Who is involved <laughs> in this? I need to know more. I'm getting this from Wikipedia. If this is false, I'm sorry. The source that's in the Wikipedia is ain'titcool.com. <laughs> Does that mean 
it's not real? I don't know, but, like, the movie news headline, who's playing the evil vice president in Jumanji 2? Published July 20th, 1999. Let me give you a quick lowdown on Jumanji 2. First up, it seems like this won't really be a sequel so much as a continuation of the premise. You see this time, John Cooper, the president of the United States, buys the game from some old antique store in Europe, brings it home, in parentheses, to the White House, in parentheses, and decides to play the game with his children, one of whom, Butch, just wants a dad and not a president for a father. Well, wouldn't you know it, the press gets sucked into the game and the world is left in evil power, hungry, and larcen- and perverted worm of a vice president, <laughs> Steve Buscemi. <laughs> Man, personally now, I'm a bit intrigued to see this film. If for nothing else, the chance to see Steve Buscemi play an evil wormy vice president. Why have I never used perverted worm of a vice president before? They're stuck in the game for a year. So does this have different rules than this movie then, where you go back into nor like you go back to the same time you left? In original Jumanji, like time passes, but that doesn't take as long. It's like their parents are gone for like the weekend or something, and like the oh, house okay, gets okay. cleaned up, like everything, like all the damage they caused goes away but time has passed wait okay sorry back to this article well after a year the president comes flying out of the game with the hell of jumanji released into the world of capitol hill (gasps) yeah well (laughs) i know i know who wants to see this shit well i have faith in ken ralston this time he's the director instead of just the effects genius what the fuck? Linz, I'm sending you this link because I need you to just look at this site because nothing about it seems credible. But I need it to be credible because I need this to have... Oh my god, this doesn't look credible at all. <laughs> they talk a lot about Steve Buscemi. It's like all about Steve Buscemi. I need this idea to have once existed and for like Steve Buscemi to have signed on enough that it's like it was definitive that he was going to be the perverted worm of a vice president. Everything that is talking about it is being like as reported by ain't it cool news i just want to know who created this lie (laughs) like whoever wrote this article had it so firm in his head like he had this weird (laughs) fever dream and he woke up was like that was real i gotta report on it dave white of the rap writes that jumanji is quote a child-friendly nod to the visual and emotional aesthetics of edgar wright's nervy scott pilgrim versus the world one where the cranky teenage characters endure the literal externalizing of their strengths and weaknesses something no high school sophomore wants to broadcast to passerbys which isn't inherent to this movie or anything that I want to talk about other than just like outside approval of our pairing. (laughs) There is a review that is by Variety that was like the first review that came out that absolutely panned this movie. When this movie came out I was working at a production company and the production company had another movie where Kevin Hart was also in and when that first review came out I remember like listening in all these frantic phone calls because this movie came out like December 2017 and the Kevin Hart movie was supposed to come out March of 2018 ended up getting pushed because Harvey Weinstein was the distributor and obviously that shit went Mm. south but I remember frantic phone calls of people being like how are we gonna like distance our Kevin Hart movie from this Kevin Hart movie if it's getting these awful (sighs) reviews and then fun fact eventually that Kevin Hart movie came out and it got horrible reviews and it wasn't very good Also, like, all the other ones of this movie were, like, fine. Like, a lot of them were, like, it's a fun family movie if oh, yeah. you, like, don't think about like, it too when, hard. But, like, when that first review came out, like, nothing came out for, like, oh, like a day later, at least. And so, like, that one first day, everyone would be like, holy shit, holy fuck. Opening scene. 
1996, and someone finds a discarded Jumanji board on the beach and brings this obviously haunted board game home. If there is a discarded board game on the beach, do not pick it up. Especially because the likelihood of it having all of its pieces. Come on, man. (laughs) If it has all its pieces, it's definitely haunted. It's supposedly the same one from the 1995 movie, but morphed into a video game. And a skater son, who we learned to be Alex, gets sucked into the game. Present day, I guess 2017. And we're introduced to the Jumanji crew. Nat Wolf, no, Alex Wolf, (laughs) aka Spencer, ends up at a creepy house, which they call the Freak House, where an old man tells him that this world swallows up kids like you. He's on his way to give Fridge his homework because he agreed to do it for him. Meanwhile, Bethany decides to FaceTime her friend in the middle of a quiz that other people are still taking. All of the main characters slowly get detention. Their detention is cleaning out the basement and unstapling a pile of magazines. Fridge and Bethany straight up just decide not to help, but Fridge finds Jumanji and turns it on. It says the game is for those who are seeking to leave their world behind. They hit the play button, a green light fills the room. They have a I don't feel so well moment and go into the TV, (laughs) which now that I know that all of these writers had something Marvel Cinematic Universe adjacent and they were all specifically involved in Spider-Man, it's like very, very fitting that they all like more or less went exactly the same way as Tom Holland does. But they reappear in the forest only as The Rock, Kevin Hart, Karen Gillan, and Jack Black. I also just find it funny of all like these people playing these teenagers. I just think it's a good... Yeah, I think Jack Black does an amazing job. Even a better bit if The Rock is playing. I was about to say Steve Buscemi, (laughs) Danny DeVito in the next movie. There's like a couple good moments because like the whole thing is the two grandfather characters like don't get what's happening. Kevin Hart plays the other grandfather character. They, however, realize that they're in other people's bodies. Bethany, who is Jack Black, freaks out that she doesn't have her phone only to then immediately and dramatically be eaten by a hippo and respawn. The Rock, aka Spencer, freaks out that he doesn't have his Claritin, and all of them notice that they have tattoos on their arms that track the amount of lives that they're given in the game, which is three. So mainly my thing of the game doesn't have a plot is like they don't need to defeat the hippos, they just need to like move. It's a platformer game. If I were playing this game, I would be bored. Like if I were playing it as a video game. Yeah. And not like a person. I don't think the Jumanji game was ever designed to not have people inside of it, you know? What was the name of that one video game? Skyrim. I feel like that's Jumanji-esque. Where there's a vague story if you look for it, but otherwise you're just in the jungle, except Skyrim doesn't take place in a jungle. But you get what I'm saying. As they're being chased by hippos, a truck pulls up for a cutscene. This movie then does the annoying thing where Spencer says that he thinks the driver is an NPC, and then Bethany says, uh, English please, and then he says that he's a non-player character. Then a letter appears in Spencer's hand to take them to a now backstory cutscene. A former friend turned nemesis van Pelt found a prized jewel which he took and then that jewel allowed him to possess all of Jumanji's animals and put a curse on Jumanji though when the jewel isn't in his possession he can still control all the animals the truck driver then waited for the nemesis who I forgot that they named him Van Pelt and he's just the nemesis in the rest of my notes the truck driver waited till the nemesis fell asleep and stole it from him cut back to present day where he gives the jewel to Spencer to return it to its natural place they get dropped off in the middle of the jungle and 
realize that each character has special powers. Bethany is the only one who can read maps, but her weakness is endurance. Spencer can smolder with intensity and apparently has no weaknesses. Martha's strength, among other things, is stance fighting and her weakness is venom. And Fridge's weaknesses are speed, strength, and cake. And his strengths are zoology along with, I forget what exactly, but one of them is just carrying Spencer's weapons. Weapons valet. <laughs> that is what it is. The now second challenge of this game is to get away from the horde of motorbikes sent by the nemesis coming after them, which also, they had, what, five or six characters to choose from? Just five? Like, what if the zoologist guy wasn't one of the ones that they picked? Would Spencer just not have weapons? Yeah, like, if Shelly wasn't picked, they wouldn't have been able to read the map, so on and so forth. I mean, Spencer also has weapons attached to his arms. Like his fists? Yeah. Those are guns, (laughs) am I right? No. I'm right. Martha realizes that she could just kick people off the bike. Spencer has a single boomerang that didn't work at first, but eventually came back and hit four of the people on the motorbikes. And then also they realize that when you die, you lose one of the three tattoos on your arm. So they think that if you die in the game, you die in real life. Bethany then asks for help peeing because she apparently has no idea how penises work. And the only explanation that's given is that Spencer tells her not to forget to aim and Fridge says, what the fuck man what happened to you except not in those words because this is rated pg-16 for some reason they dedicate such a long time to this scene it's not like a one-off joke like where fred is like oh man i gotta go pee and she's like i've been dreading this all day but like me too can you show me how like they like actually do the whole scene of like showing her how to pee and i'm like why did we like this doesn't progress the plot this doesn't reveal anything about the characters they reveal that spencer and fridge actually used to be friends <laughs> but fridge says that he's just some annoying kid that he's been trying to get rid of since seventh grade and he asked him to do one favor by writing his paper so Spencer calls him a dumbass so Fridge pushes him off of a cliff and <laughs> taking away one of his lives. Which like 1000% would happen. <laughs> like Absolutely. <laughs> I'm very shocked it only happens like once in this movie that someone just is like you know what man fuck you and pushes someone to their death. <laughs> then their next task is at a bazaar and they're looking for the missing piece of the map which they never actually need but someone is selling bread so Spencer's like ah it's the game telling us that we need to keep our health up Bethany mistakes cake for bread because she hasn't had bread in years so Fridge eats some but cake is one of his weaknesses so he explodes in the market and loses a life I feel like there are jump scares in this movie I'm I'm gonna say it there are jump scares in this movie <laughs> is one of them. I've seen this movie so many times that nothing jump scares me anymore. I can't tell you if I've ever been jump scared by that moment. A little girl approaches them in the market. Someone else asks about the map, but she only responds to Spencer. So then he asks about the map and she takes them to an ominous basket and says, if they make one wrong move, they're in a casket. There is, however, a very poisonous snake in the basket. So their solution is that someone needs to stare at the snake not moving, which obviously doesn't work because they all freak out but then Fridge defangs it because he's a zoologist and he knows how to do that. But the missing piece isn't a missing piece of the map. It is an elephant token that says, when you see me begin to climb. The missing piece is Alex. Yes, but this is what they're getting for now. 
Yes. <laughs> the Nemesis's crony dudes then go to the market. So they all fight, but really only Spencer and Ruby because they're the only people that can. Nick Jonas swings in and swoops them underground. He's a pilot, presumably the other fifth character that they could have played as, which a real L that this whole time someone could have chosen to be Nick Jonas and they didn't, but there's no one I well, really would have replaced him with. Fridge tried to pick Nick Jonas. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that was the I whole thing. That. It was like, oh, it's not letting me pick it. He's like, oh, just go to the next one. It was because that character was already in play. I take back the real L. I'm glad with who was there. Yeah, if Fridge was Nick Jonas instead, that would have been really funny. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> also, what kind of name is Fridge? They say his full name at some point, and I don't remember what it is, so I'm like, Spencer I Spencer calls him Refrigerator him at one point, and that made me laugh. It is kind of fun that, like, he's Anthony Fridge Johnson, and he's playing Franklin Moose Finbar. Mouse. <laughs> Moose. <laughs> that joke well, he from thought the it was beginning. Moose, so that's the... <laughs> Yeah, well, because the Jumanji wiki alias is Franklin Moose Finbar, and then it's Moose, and then it's Mouse. (laughs) Nick Jonas takes them through a series of obstacles underground where they find a door to re-enter them into the middle of the forest. He reveals that his name is Alex and that his strengths are piloting and margaritas, so he makes the crew of like 15 year olds a bunch of margaritas fridge is the only one that drinks them and then is drunk for like the rest of the movie alex tells them that he's been in the game for a few months and hasn't been able to make it past the next level obviously because all of them are needed to play this game next scene fridge is drunk so he decides to make dick jokes i did not write down what dick jokes were made i just said that he made them the crew plus alex go to the transportation shed which is in the next level and where alex has died twice previously trying to get away but like very convenient he hadn't died until the transportation shed like especially because they needed the zoologist to get past the snake so i guess well, he was he just like snake i'm gonna leave so he didn't do that like i think that was like a bonus i wasn't sure if he just got there and was like cool moving on yeah who knows what the clue he was given because like he didn't have a map like how, how did he know to go anywhere yeah how did, how did he get this far to begin with Dude was really good at video games. I don't know if he needed a plot of this game to get where he was. Like, I don't know if a plot led him there or if he just took up camp and it was just conveniently along a point or if it's like Breath of the Wild where there's no linear progression. It's just all of these things need to happen to do a final end goal, but not in any particular order. You're just in this universe. And like, you have to beat Ganon, but like, you can do that right away you can do that once you have more powers they want to use martha to flirt with the guards to distract them which martha absolutely refuses to do this is also in my mind bethany tries to teach her how to not be absolutely wacky while trying to flirt with the guards is the only way i'm gonna (laughs) describe it meanwhile alex makes some 90s jokes and then everyone else is like what are you talking about and he reveals that he entered the game in 19 96 as the person in the opening scene and apparently the real him has been missing for 20 years and he's the son of the old man in the quote-unquote freak house which is what they call it because he never recovered and like fell apart after and also his, his last name is Vreek oh really v-r-e-e-k yeah, i missed that 
And ah, uh, it's like yes, they're playing on the fact that the old man never recovered and like the house and dis- is in disrepair. But it's like a really good pun on that kid's last name, which like obviously they wrote to make that joke. But like, good job. Martha's flirting doesn't work because the guards have pre-programmed responses. So every time she says something, they just keep asking the same question. But she can still keep them distracted by dance fighting with them because. This is Scott Pilgrim. Also, this movie good also music. has a good song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know that I just hated on Scott for the. I, I was going to say, I know I skated. Sk- skated. skated on Scott. <laughs> you showed him up like Lucas Lee. You grinded them rails. <laughs> but I was going to say, these are both very, like, fun movies. <laughs> Alex flies them out in the helicopter because his skill is piloting, so obviously they needed him to fly out or they wouldn't have done it. The nemesis gang hits the helicopter, breaking its ability to go up while they're in like a valley of a canyon or something, and the team gets chased by albino rhinos whose only purpose seems to be that they eat people, <laughs> according to Fridge. According to Drunk Fridge, who tried to fly the helicopter <laughs> drunk, which is like, yeah, I'm glad someone stopped. I feel like Drunk Fridge's inherent knowledge of animals is still, like, on par pre-programmed into him. I don't know if the game knew to, like, program in what happens if the characters get- no, they obviously would have had to pre-program in what happens if the characters get drunk because his skill is margaritas. Yeah. So, like, they've thought about it. <laughs> I mean, again, who is the they? Steve Buscemi. <laughs> oh my god. Just imagining Steve Buscemi alone, like, being like, yes. Here's how the characters are going to react with margaritas. That evil worm, that pervy worm. Spencer fixes the plane, though it is absolutely not one of his abilities, so I don't know how he does it. Fridge goes to throw up out of the plane because he's drunk, and the jewel falls out of his backpack, and for a second it seemed like he wasn't going to tell the crew, and then he did. (laughs) Imagine if he didn't. Imagine they get all the way to the Jaguar and they're like, yeah, so Fridge, hand me the jewel. Yeah, I don't got that. The jewel? <laughs> you had it, man. I gave it to you. I mean, Spencer would get his wish of staying in Jumanji forever, but the curse would be upon them. Yeah, that's not a Jumanji you want to stay in. Although Alex has been doing just fine. Yeah, for however long he's there, he avoided mosquitoes, which seems impossible in a jungle. Yeah, maybe he didn't land in the same place because, like, they all immediately got bit. So to get it back, Spencer sacrifices Fridge by throwing him to the rhinos, and now he only has one life left, which I also. Also will say none of Fridge's deaths were his own fault and the rest of the group is just cruel. Well, I mean, when he ate the pound cake, like he should have looked at that and go, hmm, this isn't bread. <laughs> I feel like if someone handed me an item and said, this is bread, depending on how hungry I was, I would just quickly put it in my mouth. I feel like you should look at what people are handing you before you eat it, Lens. And this is a character flaw in me that I'm aware of. I'm just thinking I don't explode. Because it wasn't like he was like, had his eyes closed and mouth open. Like he physically grabbed the pound cake. Like he had the whole thing in his hand. After they complete the level, Alex gets bitten by a mosquito. And because it's one of his weaknesses, he dies. But considering he's in a jungle, it seems extremely unfair that that would be a weakness. Because they're all getting bitten by mosquitoes. But Bethany gives him CPR and therefore gives her extra life to him. Meanwhile, Spencer uses his 
uses Dwayne the Rock Johnson confidence to tell Martha that he is quote completely into her and Martha says same they then very tragically try to kiss each other like miss each other's mouths completely and like their tongues are like fucking at the other side of the jungle every time I watch this movie this scene will always get a laugh it's just so painfully bad and it's so funny like <laughs> thinking about Karen and Dwayne the Rock Johnson like doing this like <laughs> filming, filming that scene, scene. <laughs> like a lot of the Jack Black things also get me but Jack Black in general like is just very good at doing those wacky kind of characters but it's like to me it isn't as funny as like picturing Karen and Dwayne standing there filming this scene like it's just so <laughs> fucking funny. Fridge then shuts it down because he found the Jaguar Mountain where the jewel goes. Spencer takes the jewel and a trail of lit torches illuminates the way to the Jaguar because the game wants them to follow them the path Spencer's like obviously we should not follow this path and they see an elephant statue nearby so he's like ah when you see the elephant you climb so I'm gonna go through the trees Spencer gets spooked by a squirrel falls and then gets mauled by actual jaguars and loses a life Spencer now with only one life reveals to Fridge that since he can now die he can no longer be this Dwayne the Rock Johnson adventurer character and Fridge is like yeah that's how humans work my dude you just gotta do it which is like the dumbest thing I've ever heard Because, like, (laughs) humans don't need to go after jaguars-infested paths. Like, that's not a thing that normal people do in their lives. True, but it worked for Spencer. Yeah, (laughs) Spencer's dumb. That's why he couldn't properly write his paper. Like, that's- he's just a dumb boy. Moral of the story is- Fridge should have asked someone better to write his paper. Yeah, why did he ask Spencer? Maybe because he thought that Spencer would do it for, like- Free. Free, yeah. (laughs) Fridge just trying to save, like, money and, like, effort. He's just like, look, this kid will do it. Ergo, I don't have to work that hard for it. And he paid the price. We pay people for our work. Yeah, this is why we pay people. (laughs) Or else you end up in fucking Jumanji. (laughs) I had the picture of Fridge going up to Spencer and asking him to do his paper and Spencer being like oh will you pay me and he's just like oh man the exposure (laughs) you can put it on your resume except you probably shouldn't put this on your resume because it is cheating (laughs) but like the exposure man fridge is then like jokes on the game this zoologist still has football knowledge and assigns them all a play to escape especially since the motorcycle nemesis group is back somewhere spencer traps the jaguars in a number nine of fire fridge and bethany split up to make gains on the mountain jaguar and Fridge finds a real elephant and is like oh when you see the elephant you climb so then he climbs the elephant and rides it over to the mountain jaguar and then the jaguars attack the elephant and it shakes the jewel out of his hand. Spencer then sees the elephant that Fridge is riding and says oh when you see the elephant you climb so then he starts climbing the jaguar when the jewel gets thrown it gets thrown into a bed of snakes. Martha retrieves the jewel but comes up with a plan for the snakes to bite her and then she dies because her weakness is venom and then she respawns somehow with the jewel still in her hand and somehow almost on top of the jaguar mountain so Spencer can put the jewel back and nothing happens and then they remember that they all have to yell Jumanji into the sky which they do the curse is lifted and the nemesis turns into mice Spencer turns to Martha when it's just them and is like what if we don't have to go back we can choose to be trapped here in this horrible game forever where we cannot get back until four other people decide to play in theory. I'm assuming that would how it work. I'm assuming it resets at some point. 
Yeah, I mean, if we go by Jumanji 2 logic, it's like an entirely new game. Like, it's like Jumanji's in trouble again, so it's like completely different. Maybe it would just make them leave eventually. Like, or would it like <laughs> flip over to that level? And then I guess everyone would go back and try and find them anyway, because either way, we don't have to figure it out because Martha's like, my dude, we can just be like this in the real world. They all respawn in the school basement and Bethany respawn. asks where Alex asks where Alex is, though he didn't enter the game with them so he probably wouldn't be there he's at his house which is no longer disheveled and it's covered in christmas decorations and a like late 30 early 40 year old alex appears wearing a banty so we know it's him he walks over to the kids somehow knowing who they are despite them not looking like their characters all they did was stare at him but also i don't think they told him the exact moment that they entered the game because they assumed that he was going to respawn back 21 years later well i mean they they knew 20 years so he knew at some point that year and the year is almost over it's december i'm sure he put two and two together of like oh these four teens are staring at me in wonder oh it's also i wonder how 2017 how many groups of teens you walked to oh it was like bethany <laughs> yeah I'm sure there were other times that year where four kids just stared at him for some reason. <laughs> if a group of four teens stared at me, I would not want to approach. I'd be like, please, please leave me alone. I'm very scared. But he had to. He he named his child after them. Just Bethany. He named his child after one of them. The four of them are now unlikely friends post-Christmas break, to which Spencer then admits not calling or trying to talk to Martha at all, but he still kisses her outside of the school with his friends watching. The crew then hears the Jumanji drum beat, so they drop a bowling ball on it to make sure that it never happens again. Except and that, that is does. Jumanji. <laughs> Except it does. Brooke, what movie did you like better? This one's hard because I actually <laughs> really do enjoy both of these movies so much. They're both so fun. These types of movies, I'm gonna piss off so many film kids, but this is why I like movies. It's a fun thing for me. Like, I don't want to think too hard at a movie theater. Like, if I get depressed, like, I'm not having a good time, you know? And, like, there's a time and place for, like deep hard thinking movies but like like these are just like such like popcorny like I'm happy I'm having a good time. I think I've seen Jumanji more than Scott Pilgrim but I don't know that I would say that I like Jumanji more. I don't know it's hard to say. So despite the fact that I just shit on Scott and that's not even touching on the like culture that is people obsessed with Ramona Flowers. Despite all of that I love Scott Pilgrim versus the world. It's a very fun movie. Both of these are very fun movies. There's so many just like added fantastical elements that are yeah. just like I like the universes that they create because they're just like absurd and don't make sense and I love that about them. Yeah, this was like a good palate cleanser after Swiped. I feel like there's not a lot of like video game-esque movies. Yeah. Both of the ways in which they were done. It would probably be like obvious to add like having multiple lives into like movies but the like way that you would actually have to think about doing that is just like interesting. Because like, they're not video game adaptations they're like video games. Yeah, they're just like normal movies in the design of like how you would play a video yeah. game. Yeah, that was Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. If you liked it, share this episode with... Share this episode with your friend who everyone compares to Ramona Flowers. Ooh, and send our apologies. <laughs> and send this to seven of your ex. I know that you cut it out, but I always tell people to send this to some sort of ex. I know, we gotta stop sending <laughs> things to exes. We're not bringing that energy into the spot. 
podcast. <laughs> and follow us on social media. We are at Film Squids Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or visit our website at filmkidsgiantsquids.com. This podcast was recorded by Brooke Coffey and Lindsay Buttle. Intro music is by the band Holly Action. Transition music is 8-Bit Circus by Bone66638. Editing by Lindsay Buttle. Until next time, squids.